It's difficult to imagine that we have already reached the halfway point of this series of sermons about questions that you asked. And as someone said to me this week, it's time to turn the bookmark over. And it's, I think it's probably significant that the side run now is red because we're kind of entering some hot topics that um, could get interesting. It's one of those moments where you realize most of us think, you know, the sermon series was titled, You Asked For It, but actually it's, hey, you asked for it, so here it is. Um, So as we think about this issue of the roles of women in the church, it, it is an interesting thing. As someone said to me, it's sort of an oddly worded question, what are women allowed to do in the church? And their response was, why did we never ask what are men allowed to do in the church? And it actually speaks to our inherent, probably uh, just the the prejudice that we all live with, that men can do anything in the church. And the only thing we have to think about is, do we limit women or not? It's an interesting thing to ponder. Now, I want to be upfront with you to give you a little idea of where I'm coming from, because you need to understand, my grandmother was an ordained minister in the Wesleyan Church. My mother is an ordained minister, and my wife is an ordained minister. So you get a feel for how I feel about this subject. I'm going to try to not be biased. I really want to to help us understand this from a biblical perspective and, and quite frankly, from a logical perspective. But that is my position. And most people, when you ask them, when you ask people who limit what women can do in the church, why is that your position? Invariably, it will be because the Bible says so. So we need to look at the Bible, and we need, to, we need to look at and look honestly at what does Scripture say about this. And we begin with creation. And the creative word is very clear. Genesis one twenty six, God created human beings, male and female, he created them in his image. It doesn't say God created males, and then he created a lesser being, females. Or that the males are fully in God's image and females are partly in God's image. They are created equally in God's image. In their essence, in their being. There are other differences, of course there are. But not in who they are as creatures of God. But even beyond that, it is the sense of of why Eve was created. Why God created woman. We, we have this mindset that because Scripture says in Genesis 2.18 that it's, God said to man, it's not good for you to be alone, so I will create a helper for you. And he created woman. And we think of the word helper meaning someone who is inferior to us. If we have a helper, that's someone who does some things that we don't want to do. Someone who has less skills than we do. Sometimes we might talk about our children as, you know, they're our little helper that come along and work with the project and we might let them hold a board for us or something like that. But it's definitely an inferior kind of position. But that word, azer in Hebrew, doesn't mean someone who's inferior. It actually is one of the common terms to describe God. The Psalms often use this term. Psalm 33 verse 20 says... We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Psalm 70 verse 5 says, Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 121 
starts out, I look to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 124, verse 8 says, Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. A better translation even than helper would be rescuer. God is our rescuer. He is the one who saves us. He's the one we cry out to in these tough situations. And the writer of Genesis says, from the mouth of God, I will create a helper, a rescuer for man. Who will rescue him from his loneliness. Who will meet the need in him that he, that he cannot be met anywhere else. And that cannot mean someone inferior to him. I mean, you could make the argument that it's someone that he's inferior to the one created for him, as God is. We are cert- God's certainly not inferior to us, but at the very least, that equality. And it changes the perspective of how we tend to interpret that word. Move on to the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written, takes place in a highly patriarchal culture. I mean, we, we live in a world that's pretty well male-dominated their world would be off the charts of that and everyone around them by and large. Which is why it's so fascinating to me that we have stories like the one in Judges 4 and 5 and the one we read a few moments ago in 2 Kings 22, which is repeated in 2 Chronicles 34. In Judges 4 and 5, we have the story of Deborah. The Israelites have sinned against God. They've rebelled. God brings another nation to come and to... uh, to impose their will on Israel, to enslave them. They cry out to God. He sends a rescuer, a judge. It's just, you see this pattern repeated over and over again in the book of Judges. And this particular time, earlier on, it's people, Gideon. Later, it's Samson, Samuel. This time, it's Deborah. God says, I need someone to lead my people, to rescue my people out of this enslavement. And I put my hand on Deborah's life. I want Deborah to do this. And she is not only called a judge, a leader, a ruler. She is also called a prophetess. Something that's not said about most of the other judges. She even has a higher position in terms of being a representative of God to the people. And it's through Deborah's ministry, it's through Deborah's leadership, that God brings Israel out of slavery and sets them free. You move on to the passage we read here in 2 Kings 22. Josiah is the new king of Israel. He's eight years old. When he turns 16, he begins to realize that there needs to be reform in Israel. And the writer of, of Kings and Chronicles tells us that Josiah is a, is a man after God's own heart. And so he, he says to him, uh, he's, God says to Josiah, we need to do something about the spiritual condition of Judah. And he begins to tear down idols and, and clean up the place spiritually. And a few years later, they begin to work on the temple that's been disregarded and disrepair. And in the midst of that, they find the book of the law, the, the word that God gave to Moses... And they pull it out and they bring it to Hilkiah the priest and he takes it to the king and he begins to read it and the king weeps and tears his clothes in mourning because they haven't been obeying the law and God is going to bring judgment on them. And he says, go inquire of the Lord to find out what we're supposed to do. He doesn't tell them where to go. He just says, go inquire of God. And where do they go? 
They go to the most spiritual person they can find, the most spiritual leader in Israel, in Judah, and it's Huldah, this prophetess. And they go to her and they say, what do we do? And she says, here is what the Lord says. Here is the word of the Lord to you. And she speaks God's word to them. And God uses that to continue the reformation in Judah. Now, I read both of those two stories in the Old Testament. And I think in this patriarchal culture, in this highly patriarchal culture, what are they doing there? I mean, of all the stories that that we could have been told, and there are thousands of them that we are not told, why would God inspire the writers of Scripture to include these two stories? I'm convinced it's because God wants His people to understand that His purpose for His people is equality in the kingdom. And that women are valued just as much as men are. That women have the freedom to use their and exercise their gifts among his people as men do. And they are leaders just as much as men are. Now, we say, well, it's just a couple of stories. Yeah, that's true. But you have to think, for God to to say to Israel in this highly patriarchal culture... All right, we're going to jump to what I really want, and that is total equality. Way too much for them at one step. So he brings them along gradually, and these stories are glimpses of what God wants to eventually get them to. It's similar to what we find when reading the Old Testament uh, in in the law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And many people interpret that as, I have the freedom to seek revenge on the person that did something to me. But actually, when you read it in the context of the Old Testament culture, if someone put out your eye, you would take their life. If someone broke your tooth, you cut off their hand. Always the response was an escalation of the violence. And God says to Israel, the most you can do is what was done to you. If if your eyes put out, you can put out their eye. If your tooth is broken, you can break their tooth. But that's it. No more than that. But when we come to the New Testament, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to them. In my kingdom, it's not about any kind of vengeance. It's about forgiveness. That's what my kingdom's about. Now, if God had said to Israel in the midst of the culture that they were living in where you poke out an eye and you take someone's life, what I really want you to do is just forgive them. What? I have no concept, no context to even think about that. So he brings them along gradually and gradually helps them to understand more and more. And as you look through the Old Testament, you see more and more movement toward eventually what Jesus tells us, which is the perfect plan of God's kingdom. But you just have to be patient with people to get them there. And I think these stories of, uh, of these women in leadership are, are God's way of getting us to what he really wants the church to be like. You look at Jesus. Jesus uh, has an astounding view of women. He treats them with so much more respect than anyone else in the culture. He welcomes them to himself. He has conversations with them. 
in places that people say you can't do that. And one of those stories is in Luke chapter 10. At the end of that chapter, a story of Jesus goes to the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. And in the midst of the story, Jesus is teaching in a part of the house. And Mary is sitting at his feet. And Martha, her sister's in the kitchen, frantically trying to get this huge meal together. And she's getting more and more irritated with her sister. And finally, she comes to Jesus and she says, tell her to help me. This is ridiculous. She should not be sitting at your feet. And there's a lot of nuances going on in that story. I think part of it is Martha's trying to impress Jesus, trying to impress people instead of just relaxing, making a simple meal and be done with it. But Jesus says what Mary's doing is okay because in one of the theories of this passage, N.T. Wright has, is that if you look at the, at the culture of the, of the ancient Near East and even to this day, people would read this story. One of the first things they would see is, what is this woman doing sitting at Jesus' feet, which would take place in the male part of the house? Because only men were allowed to learn in this way. Because the whole point of learning from a rabbi was to teach other people what the rabbi said. You know, we tend to say, well, we'll learn and just, I'll just, you know, enjoy what I learn. But for them, it was all about learning so you could teach. And here is Mary sitting at Jesus' feet in the male part of the house, learning from him so that she can tell others. And Martha complains about it because Mary is breaking the social norms of their world. And Jesus says, what Mary is doing is good. In fact, Martha you really should come and join her. And you look in the book of Acts, well, even before that, you look at the resurrection story. It's amazing to me that the the first witnesses of the resurrection are women. We tend to not think that much about that, but in their culture, women were not valid witnesses. If a woman saw a crime committed and, and this person was taken to court, you would never call the woman to come be a witness because their witness meant nothing. No one would would validate a woman's testimony. That's the way people felt about women in that day. But the writer of Scripture tells us women are the first witnesses to the most significant event in the history of the world. And they are the first messengers of that event. As the angel and Jesus both say, go tell the disciples, I'm going to meet them in Galilee. I wonder if it's the reason why it tells us that the disciples don't believe them is because... It's women telling us. We better go check this out for ourselves. And the scripture condemns them for that doubting. And then you move into the book of Acts and you find in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit comes on the people of Pentecost. Peter, quoting the prophet Joel, says, My spirit will come upon men and women all, and, and your young men and your young women and they will all prophesy. They will all proclaim God's word. You move into the later part of Acts chapter 21. And Paul is in his, on his journey. And he comes to the home of Philip the evangelist. And the writer Luke says to us parenthetically. Uh, Philip who was this great evangelist. Also had four daughters who were prophetesses. They also spoke the word of God to people. In the end of Romans. You get to chapter 16. It's one of those passages we tend to ignore. Because it's just a bunch of names that Paul greets. Greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. It's like reading someone's personal letter about people you don't know. You skip over that because that's not the good stuff. But the reality is those names tell us a lot about what the church is like in Rome. And a number of names on that list are women. And they are called leaders, co-leaders, deacons, prophetesses, 
They are given places of authority in the church in Rome. And in Philippians chapter 4, the beginning of the fourth chapter, Paul talks about these two women. They're having an argument with each other. And the reason it's important is because they're both leaders in the church. And they need to settle it. And Paul doesn't have, you know, he just assumes they're other leaders in the church. That's why we got to take care of this. So you see these examples all throughout Scripture and throughout history of the church of women in positions of leadership. And here's the problem. The problem is that Paul has a couple of places where he says, I don't want women to speak in the church. We read one of those passages this morning in 1 Corinthians 14. The other significant one is 1 Timothy 2, chapter, uh, verses uh, 11 and 12. And in these passages, Paul says, you know, I, I don't want women to speak in the church. Now, you've got a couple of options here. Either this is what is significant. This is, this is the word that trumps all, everything, all the actions. And therefore, Paul is a hypocrite. If this is a general rule that Paul is now laying down, then that means that everything, all the practicing that he has done, everything that he has said has allowed to happen and greet these women who are in leadership and you know, help them in leadership, then he's a hypocrite because he's doing one thing and saying another. But if these passages are simply Paul addressing a specific situation in a local church, then it makes sense. Because it doesn't make him a hypocrite. It doesn't make him, as you can imagine some people would think, a male chauvinist pig. In fact, I, you know, I was telling Christina and, and, and Sarah Dirk at second service and Cindy at first service that you know, when they read this passage, I, I have a feeling it kind of stuck in the back of their throats to read those phrases. And quite frankly, sometimes it's a little hard to say this is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. I don't know what it feels like to what it must feel like as a woman to read what Paul writes here. But we've all been in places where we are the minority and something is said, something is written that puts us down. And we know how painful that is. And I cannot imagine that Paul is creating this general rule that now makes the church Establishes a church in classes. There are, there are, you know, there are, you're going to get different explanations of these two passages that Paul, uh, that Paul writes. But I'm, I'm convinced that it's a specific situation. It's a specific word to some specific women in a specific place, not a general rule. In Ephesus, where Timothy is a pastor, you, you have people who... Uh, there's, their heresy has developed, as it does in all the churches. That's why they write the letters, try to correct that. And, and so he, he writes to them and, and about this heresy. And for some reason, in this setting, the women are the most susceptible to it. In other settings, it's the men. But in this setting in Ephesus, uh, the heresy has been embraced by the women. It, they are promoting it in the church. And Paul writes and says, look... We can't be doing this. You need to submit yourselves to the authority of those who are in leadership who are teaching orthodoxy because you are not. And you're being, you're being deceived. You need to listen to what they're saying. Stop talking about this in the church because it's tearing the church apart. 
Not because women aren't allowed to speak at all, but because women, what they're speaking is heresy. And when you look at the passage in, in Corinthians, you, you have a couple of theories here. One is that, that he's talking about women who refuse to follow the rules, the guidelines he set up about speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is a significant part of the Corinthian church. It's one of the things, ways in which they sense the spirit at work in them. But it's getting out of hand. And it seems as though, at least it, it appears in this passage, that perhaps some of the women are getting out of hand more than the men are. And so yeah, he wants to address that. Another option is that uh, when the women come to church and maybe their husbands don't come with them, they are... They are standing outside before and after the worship time and they are having conversations with men week after week after week in which they are developing a relationship and a bond, an emotional bond with these men who are not their husbands. And Paul is saying this is dangerous to your home and to the church. And in essence, he is saying, if, you, if this, uh, this very uh, thoughtful response, in essence, he's saying... I'm not concerned about you speaking in the church worship time. I'm concerned about these conversations you're having outside of the worship time. And if you want to have these kinds of emotionally bonding conversations, go home and have them with your husbands, not with other men. And there's another theory that the women who are not allowed to be educated don't really understand everything that the preacher is speaking in the church. And so they are asking their husband questions and they are talking among themselves and they're questioning and their talking continues to grow and grow in intensity because they don't really understand what's being said. And so the preacher ever so often has to say, listen, women, be quiet. We can't hear. We can't understand. If you have questions to ask, don't ask them in the middle of this. Wait till you get home and then ask them of your husband who is more educated. But as N.T. Wright says, nowhere in these passages could you... Could you get the idea that Paul is saying women aren't allowed to be leaders or to speak the word of God in the church? Now, again, I recognize people have different opinions about that. And I come, my, my question that keeps coming back to me is, why is this a big deal for us? For me, it's a big deal because it speaks to the value and worth of a significant element of the church. However we describe it, whether we want to deny this truth or not, the minute we say that someone is limited in, a, in their role in the church, someone is limited in the ability to use their gifts in the church, that we put limitations and barriers on people in the church simply because of the way they were born, we are creating a class system in the church. It has nothing to do with, with their heart, it has nothing to do with not having gifts. It has nothing to do with a sinful lifestyle a person may be living. It is simply the way they were born. And because this person was born male, they can do whatever they want. And because this person was born female, they can't. These are now second-class citizens. And their value and their worth is less than men. And when I read the scriptures and when I read the, about the nature and the character of God, I find it impossible to believe that that would be God's plan. I mean, Paul says in the kingdom, there's no such thing as male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. 
what I find fascinating is that in this, in the context of what he says, people who say that females can't do what males do don't say the same thing about slaves and people who are free or about Gentiles and Jews. Those barriers have broken down, no problem. It's only this one that we want to hang on to. It doesn't make any sense to me. There's no logic to that. I just find it hard to believe that God would design the kingdom in a way that would promote discrimination and class. When I get to heaven, I can't quite imagine in my mind that in heaven there will be classes of people. That the males will, have, will be able to do more in heaven than females will. That nationalities and races will have limitations on some or not. I just don't see that that's really what heaven will be. And Jesus prays, and we prayed earlier, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So if that's the picture of heaven, shouldn't it be the picture of earth as well? I mean, shouldn't this be what we are trying to accomplish and create and design? Not because of us, but because of who God is and what God, how God deals with people and how God creates. There are people who want to go back to the fall in Genesis 3 and say, this is why women have limitations, because, on the, because God said to women, then your husband will rule over you. The problem with that is that that's a part of the curse. That's the result of sin, not the result of God's design. And everything that has every part of that curse... We continually are trying to restore, ultimately through Christ. I don't think any of us, you know, even though the curse on Adam was that working the ground would be far more difficult, I don't think there's any of us who would say it is wrong for us to try to pick rocks out of the ground and try to pull weeds. It doesn't doesn't work that way. I do find it interesting, though, that for people who limit what women can do, seem to have no problem with women working with children. And when I read the scriptures, it seems to me that women, uh, that children are our most valuable resource. There is nothing more precious to God. When we read the way Jesus views children... There's nothing more precious to God than children. The problem, I'm convinced, is that we don't want to submit to the authority of someone that we, deep in our minds, believe is inferior to us. And when you word the question, often when the questions are worded, it's who is going to lead Who's going to be in control? Who gets to make decisions? Who speaks for God? All of these questions are questions about power. I think Jesus makes it very clear that in his kingdom, it's not about power, it's about submission. The question we ought to be asking is, God how many people could you possibly, would you be able to speak into my life and help change me? I don't want to limit anyone who might have a word from you to me because I need it. 
God, it's not about me grasping for power. It's about humbling myself before anyone and everyone. It's about listening to your voice despite whose mouth it may come out of. That's the spirit of the kingdom. About sacrifice and submission and surrender and humility and respect. Those are kingdom principles. And instead of being worried about who gets the power and and, and who who does God favor more than others, we're thinking, what difference does it make? Just speak into my life, Lord. Change me, work in me. And I suspect, it's been my experience, that often the most profound words that God speaks into my life are from people that I might not want to hear from. Maybe I disagree with some part of their theology or, or maybe, maybe we view issues differently or, or maybe they're less or more educated than I am. But more often than not, those are the very people God wants to speak into my life. Why? Because humility is at the heart of accepting that and the kingdom keeps bringing us back to humility and submission and surrender. John Wesley had hundreds and hundreds of women who were leaders in the Methodist movement back in the 18th century. And Wesley was profound about letting women lead, but not just women, also all classes of people. And he was taken to task for that. One famous contemporary preacher of his said to him, you know, what you're doing is wrong. You need to let the, uh, let, the, let the blacksmiths go back to their shoeing. Let the bakers go back to their ovens. Let the barbers go back to what they're doing. Let, let the seamstresses go back to what they're doing. Let everybody go back to doing whatever it is that they want to do. But don't let them lead in the church. And Wesley said, oh no, these people are the heart of the kingdom. They have more to offer the kingdom than you and I do. Their love for God is so profound. These are what the kingdom is about. It's not about classes. It's about the unity of the spirit. All of us. Because Jesus comes to break down barriers and to set us free. It's not about how much, how much of a wall we can build. It's not about tiers and layers and classes. It's about being set free. Barriers crumbling down in the unity of God, Christ in the kingdom. Wesley learned from his mother. She was, she was his most profound spiritual influence. When her husband was, uh, was a, a priest in the Church of England. And every Sunday night, she would gather her children, and she had a lot of them. She would gather her children in the kitchen of the parsonage and teach them. Teach them the things of the faith. She was so good at this that the servants asked if they could join her. And then their families wanted to join too. And then the people of the parish wanted to come, and eventually there were a couple hundred people. I don't know what size their kitchen was, but it must have been big. 
And there was a period of time where, as this was going on, that her husband was away on business for a number of months, and the assistant pastor, the curate, was in charge of the church. And he wrote to her husband and, and was upset because more people were coming to hear Susanna on Sunday night in the kitchen than were coming to hear him on Sunday morning at the church. And so Samuel wrote to her and said, you've got to stop doing this because you're offending the curate. And she wrote him back and said, if you can promise me, if you can promise me without any doubt that when I get to heaven, I'm not going to be held accountable because I didn't use my gifts to teach people, then I'll stop. But if you can't guarantee me that, I'm going to keep teaching. She kept teaching. And lives were transformed. You may disagree with me. But the one thing we can't disagree about is the need to be humble before God and before each other. To live not in a spirit of grasping for power, but in a spirit of surrender and submission. Because the scriptures tell us that we'll never submit to God if we don't learn to submit to each other. This is the nature of the kingdom. Holy Father, there are lots of things that we may disagree about, we may not fully understand. But Lord, you have called us to serve you and to serve one another. You've called us to surrender ourselves and to submit ourselves to you by surrendering and submitting ourselves to each other. And Lord, you have given us gifts and abilities. And we just want to use them for your kingdom, for your glory. Set us free from the barriers we create. And make us one in the spirit of Christ.